Let us turn in Scripture to John chapter 1. Let us read the first 18 verses of this chapter. It is the prologue to the Gospel of John. The Word of God reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And that is a reading of the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, we come before you and before a passage in Scripture that unfolds something about your Son that we can barely look into. We bow before you, before your magnificence, before the Holy God, and before him who was at the beginning with God, face to face with God, being God, and came and became flesh to show grace and truth. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit may open the eyes of our understanding that we may see something glorious about your Son, about our Savior, about the one who makes you known, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. The James Webb Telescope has made discoveries that are complicating the life of standard cosmology. This telescope is located at a place with more modern technology and lenses that enables it to see farther and deeper into space. And the whole purpose is that it looks, the farther you look, 
the closer you look to the Big Bang. And there's a problem. They are finding galaxies that are formed and mature at a spot in the space-time of the universe that they shouldn't be. Because according to evolution, they should have been baby galaxies, but they are completely formed. If you're a believer, you say, aha, <laughs> that's because Genesis 1-1 is true. But don't shout victory. They're saying, no, we need to reevaluate our formulas and calculate better the rate of expansion of the universe. So why? Because whether you're an atheist or you're a believer, the problem with truth is not science. It is that the truth is suppressed, stifled, covered with a cloth of unrighteousness, not of knowledge. So if you believe, you will believe. And if you don't believe, you will not believe. Tony mentioned something that we should be aware of. We have to be intentional in preaching the gospel, not in being experts at science because we're not going to be experts at science. And reading a couple of articles and watching a 15-minute YouTube video doesn't make you an expert in science. You try to go out with that and fight in the real world, and they'll destroy you. Believe me. Just preach the gospel. That's where the power of God lies to Turn souls out of darkness into light. And in this passage, we find he who was at the beginning. I believe in the Big Bang. God said, and bang, <laughs> here's creation. It's not my coining. It's an old saying from a preacher. And it is true. At the beginning, there was God. And God is immaterial. And God doesn't need space or time to exist. So there was a time where there was no seconds running. There was no space available. There was no matter. There was no energy. There was God. And in that point out of the space-time we know, God was. And in the beginning, there was the Logos. That is a prologue, the prologue to John's gospel. The Logos, who for the philosophers like Heraclitus, was some kind of uh, human reasoning or akin to human reasoning, or for the Stoics, was that spiritual principle that governed the universe, or for Philo, the Jewish philosopher, was this mediator between God and creation, this Logos, John says, no, I'll tell you who the Logos is. In the beginning, there was the Logos, face to face with God, being God. It's fascinating, the grammar of John 1.1. And if you say, why are you preaching that? Dayton Garcia got me into this trouble of preaching through this. So if it really comes bad, it's his fault. <laughs> the construction of John 1.1 1, 1 is, is actually fascinating. It is an imperfect of the verb to be. In the beginning, the Logos was. Now in English, you have to be, is, was, where. In Spanish, we have two verbs. We have ser. We have a star for the same to be. 
the version of ser, what you are, your being, is what John is describing here. But he's also describing the sense of location, which is the estar in Spanish. So John is saying in the beginning, the Logos already was. And the Logos was with God. And that Logos already was who he is. It's an imperfect tense. It is describing the action of a verb that is occurring already before the point of reference. So whatever John says about the Logos happened and was before the first second, the first millimeter, the first gram of matter, the first joule of energy. Whatever he says about the Logos already was all the way from eternity before time or space or matter even existed. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was already who he was when the first moment of time appeared. Now, did John draw from Greek philosophy this concept of the Logos? Because the Logos existed five centuries, six centuries before John. Did he draw from that philosophy to writing in Koine Greek, address the Greek culture of his day and say, this is the true Logos? Or did he borrow from Jewish literature? I've seen commentators this week debate, and the answer is, I don't know. The text doesn't say whether John is drawing from a Jewish concept which was unexistent or inexistent in the Old Testament, or if he was trying to address his culture with the concept of the Logos. I really do not know. The second thing he says about Jesus is that he is the Creator. Verse 3, all things were made through him. In verse 10, he repeats the same concept. Whatever has been made was made by him. He came to the world which was made by him. Twenty years before, the Apostle Paul had written something similar in Colossians 1. Twenty years before Paul had written, Jesus is before all things. He is the one in whom all things stay together. All things were made by him, through him, for him. So perhaps John was thinking about Paul's words to the Colossians because the Gospel of John was written after the letter to the Colossians. We do not know. But we can presume with a measure of certainty that John, as a Jew, knew about that personification of wisdom that was made in Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8, it's a poem, it's an illustration, it's a figure of speech commanding people to embrace wisdom. And the writer of the poem personifies wisdom as something as old as God. And he writes, Proverbs 8, 22, The Lord possessed me 
at the beginning of his work. His first, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. He's talking about wisdom. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him, always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. That is talking about wisdom in a poem in the Old Testament, but when you put everything together... It's obvious that it is a reference to Christ, the delight of the Father. Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The one who was there making everything. And Paul says, through him all things have been made. And for him, and by him, and nothing of what exists, exists without the handiwork of the Logos. The Son, Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Thirdly, and there are nine things that John says about Jesus presenting him. He's writing a gospel and he's like saying, let me tell you nine things about the person I'm going to write about. He was with God from the beginning. He was God from the beginning. He is the creator. Thirdly, he is the life giver. Verse 4, in him was life and life was the light of men. Later on, Jesus identifies himself in those terms. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the way. It's not just that Jesus gives life. And yes, if you believe in his son, you have eternal life. And before the, the tomb of Lazarus, he told Martha and Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he's dead, he shall live but Jesus is saying, or actually John is writing about Jesus, it's not that he gives life. He is life. Now it's a challenge, like what makes life? Because technically we are made of the same material of the mud on the earth of the ground. The same elements. And if you go lower than the elements, it's the same strings or the same quantums or whatever it is that forms the fabric of substance and matter. It is the same stuff. But why are we alive? And that's a real challenge. That things alive are different than those that are not. And here is John saying, well, he is the life. In him was life. He is the active agent and the active life giver in the universe. Now, we have to assume safely that John is talking about spiritual life, right? When you read the Gospels, he's not talking about biological life. He's not talking about organic matter, organic chemistry. He's talking about spiritual life. But nonetheless, life is not only the Logos, but the Logos is the fountain and giver of life. And normally life comes linked and mixed in John's writings 
in Johannine literature, as it is called, with light. That's why this parenthesis of John the Baptist comes in and he says, but he is also the light. Verses 6 and 9 read, and I'm going to just quickly skim through them. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about that light. Later in his gospel, John presents Jesus and identifies him as that. He said, I am the light of the world. And anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness. And again, Jesus is talking about light in a spiritual sense. Now you can say, well, is he the author of the photons that convert into light and that our retina perceives, our, our cones uh, in the eyes or the the bastons, or however you call them, the other cells in the retina. Uh, can, can, is he the author of those? Fo- yeah, well, everything that exists, whether it is visible or invisible, was made by him, for him, and through him. But in this context, it is talking about light, spiritual light. He is the remover of darkness, intellectual darkness, spiritual dark- darkness, Righteousness, darkness. Jesus is that fountain and definition of life. The life giver that brings us to the Father. Conversion. What is conversion? I'm sad I don't have a little switch light here with me, but do you remember those old switch lights? I know everything's now in the telephone and smart homes. Back in the day when you had this little thing that you would do like... Remember that? Or the little... If you're older, you had a little rope hanging. Well, the room was dark, completely dark. We are born in darkness. We are born dead. It's not my language. It's the language of the Bible. We're born dead in sins and trespasses. But one day, according to 2 Corinthians 3, the Holy Spirit (laughs) turns the light. And you see, you see yourself a sinner. You see yourself in need of a Savior. You see yourself wanting to run to Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is that life giver that quickens the soul and brings us to God. There's a passage that sometimes we don't ponder too much in it. We speak about, come to me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You know what it says before that? Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. And whomever the Son wishes to reveal Him. To know God, you have to have Jesus willing to say, you, come, meet my Father. And conversely, in John 6, no one comes to me unless the Father in heaven draws Him. And here's John saying, He is the life and light giver. He is the light that illumines every man. Now, in John's gospel, we have to be careful because I don't think John was a universalist. When he uses that every and every man, he's many times assigning a group of people in particular, but he uses every to refer to them. You could say Jesus illumines every man that is born. Could be. 
Or you could say Jesus is the light that illumin illumines everyone who believes. Also could be. Whomever follows me, he said, will not walk in darkness. Fifthly, verses 10 and 11 present Jesus as rejected. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. And who were those own? <laughs> the Jews. The Jews did not receive Jesus. Even in the parables in Matthew, you find that illustration of the man who sends servants to his vineyard. And that vineyard, according to Isaiah and the prophets, was Israel. And God is sending them servants. Finally, he sends his son, saying, they will have some respect for my son. But when the vineyard owners see him, they kill the son. And Jesus is just illustrating what Israel would do with him. Well, here's John saying, he came to his own, but they did not receive him. Of course, in general, it refers to those who, because of their walking in darkness, they do not receive Jesus. They reject the light. And later on in John 3, he explains why. People reject the light that it may not be manifest that their deeds are done in unrighteousness. I have, well, yes, I have visited clubs. When you go on a cruise, they have this place in the top floor that there are people dancing and singing karaoke. That's the only disc club I've visited in my life. But if you have experience with that world, they don't open at 10 a.m. They open late at night, don't they? If you have experience with other things, Paul says, yes, the wicked do their deeds at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. When you have a cousin or an aunt or an uncle that gets drunk at noon, you're really worried about Aunt Joe. This guy's drunk already at 11 o'clock. That's not normal. You are drunk at 11 o'clock at night. Well, John says, yes, those who do their dark deeds reject the light that it is not exposed and made evident that their works are evil. And here's Jesus being rejected because he came as light, but darkness hates the light. It is very hard, very hard. It is probably impossible to be faithful to the Lord and to his gospel and at the same time popular and light. You can't. You something has to give. You either give being popular and liked by everyone, or you give being faithful. Can't do both. Because light exposes darkness, and darkness hates light. Sixthly, but he is received by some, which is what verses 12, 13 say. But to those who received them, to those who believe in his name, to those he gave the right to become children of God, to those who received the Logos as what he is, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed, Jesus the Sent by God as the prophet, priest, king he is, and those who embrace him in such terms, those gain the right 
to become children of God. But aren't we all children of God? Oh, yes, we are. Yes, we are. By creation, we are children of God. You know, who is our brother by creation? The devil, yes. Job, Job too. One day the children of God came to present themselves among God or to God. Among them came the devil. And the devil came among those children of God to say, have you considered my servant Job? Or, or God said to him, I'm sorry. Righteous man, unblemished. So when you say, yeah, we're all children of God, remember the devil too. Oh, I fear God. Remember, the devil trembles too, believing and fearing. So there has to be something more. That something more is that God is father by adoption to those who receive Christ. And that's the truth of Ephesians 2, 1, 5 and many other passages. That we become children of God by adoption. We are brought into his family, the language of the catechism. We are brought into God's family as God's dear children by adoption through Christ. When we believe, when we're born again, we are brought into the family of God, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And seventh, John says, He is the Word incarnate. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and we saw his glory. Now here, my engine stalls, my transmission overheats, and I stop. I'll just repeat to you things that I gleaned from the Scripture, but please don't try to tell me to explain it, because I can't explain it. I mean, there are other simpler things that I could never understand, and I could solve the equations. I remember when I was taught about hyperspace, and, and fourth and fifth degree uh, integrals. I could solve them. I got an A, but I have no idea how exactly does the fourth and fifth degree integrals work. Honestly, no idea. If those are earthly things. Imagine when I talk about heavenly things. They blow me. But let me say what it says. The Word became flesh. Now, what does that mean? Theologically, it doesn't mean that God transformed into a man. No. Because the word before the first millimeter of space, nanosecond of time, nanogram of matter, or nanojoule of energy, before any of that stuff existed, the Logos was already God. With everything that God is, all the infinitude, of his essence, all the infinitude of his attributes, whomever God is, this essence that cannot be equated or compared to anything we can even imagine. We're not allowed to make images or illustrate the divinity because God says, you cannot compare me to anything. That's the whole gist of Isaiah 40. Well, this God became flesh. What is that? that the Logos, the divine, took upon himself a human nature. But what is that? It means that he remained being a hundred percent God, 
But at a given point in time, he became 100% human. What is mind-boggling is that he will remain 100% human for all eternity. Jesus didn't get rid of his humanity after the resurrection or after the ascension. 60 years or 30 years before the resurrection, Paul said there's one God and one mediator between God and man. 30 years after, Jesus Christ the man. His title, the Son of Man. Why the virginal or the virgin birth? Oh, he needed to be born of a virgin to be born without sin. No, <laughs> that's horrible theology. You know why he had to be born of a virgin? Because a pre-existing person was coming to a womb to take human nature. He couldn't have a daddy. Otherwise, a new person would have been formed. But this person already existed. Now, I'm not making that up. Luke says, Luke one thirty-five. The holy issue, the holy thing, this holy one that is coming out of you, Mary, shall be called holy. He was already called holy at conception because it was the pre-existing Logos who came to take humankind upon him. And in the eighth place, he is the bearer of grace and truth, verses 15 and 17. And John pitches this contrast. The law came through Moses. This was John the Baptist preaching. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, I drew a Venn diagram there. It's not to bring you nightmares about your third grammar school uh, math, because we, I think we learned Venn diagrams when we were in third grade of elementary school, maybe fourth. Back in my day, uh, nowadays things are so modern that maybe they were taught in, in kindergarten, but back in the day, it was third or fourth grade. Now, I'm not bringing that to bring you bad memories of your elementary school, but to illustrate what, what you see there. What, what John is saying is law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Where's the common point between law and gospel? Paul says in Romans, they both show the righteousness of God. Equally, no difference between looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, whoa, this God means business. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no images of me. You shall not take my name in vain. Side note. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're violating the third commandment. Be very careful. My kids know how strict I was with that. And James says, whomever breaks the law in one point becomes guilty of all. So mind your, your tongue with the, oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. Don't take my name in vain. That's the God of the Bible. I didn't make that up. I'm just telling you for your own sake. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not take what is not yours. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. And thou shalt not covet your neighbor's property. I was at a house last night. Very beautiful. Has been remodeled. Awesome. Looks precious. Wow. 
rejoice. <laughs> Don't covet it. Don't say, oh, I wish mine were like that. No, no, be happy that somebody else had the money to put their house beautiful. That's the way it works. That's, God means business. And it shows the law, his righteousness. And the gospel does the same. One on the cross, dying for sin, when he never broke those Ten Commandments. What's going on here? That God is righteous and that he means business. And where's the common point? Precisely that. That the gospel and the law show righteousness, but through the law I cannot attain it. The law has no power to make me righteous. When I get into the expressway and it says Miami, 175 miles. If you stand by the sign, post, yeah, what are you doing here? Getting to Miami, standing here by the post. The post is only telling you you're 175 miles away. You better get in a horse, a donkey, or start walking if you want to make it. That's the gospel. The law has no power to make you holy or to make you righteous. None whatsoever. It doesn't matter how hard you try to be holy, how hard you try to sanctify yourself. Absolutely no possibility. The gospel does. One came who did it in your place. And through him, we are justified. And that's what John is saying. And finally, verse 18, he says, and he is God's exegete. What is that? That's the title of my sermon, God's exegete. Why? Because no one ever saw God, ever. Lots of books that are very popular. I went to heaven and I saw the light. Went to heaven and talked to Jesus. There's a movie. But the father who lost his son and he came back. and Very popular and we cried. The book says, no one, no one has ever seen God. In the original, ever, ever. Nobody. But one, the only begotten God, Trinitarian language, but the only begotten God, ESV says, who is by the Father. Others translate the word who is in the bosom of the Father, who is in the very essence of who God is, who is very God of God himself. That only begotten God has brought him to light. This is a verb where we get exegesis. Has explained him. Has displayed him. Has shown him. Do you want to know God? Remember the conversation with Philip. Last night of Jesus' ministry. Sometimes we get discouraged with people not moving forward, right? Here's Jesus, God on earth, three years and a half with these 12 guys, explaining everything clearly. The very last night before going to the cross, Jesus, yes, sir, show me the Father and that's enough. No, man, you're kidding me. Philip, I've been so long with you. Three years and a half, you've heard me, man. You've seen the miracles. You were with me at Lazarus' tomb. You don't know me. Don't you know that he who has seen me has seen the Father who sent me? 
I am the Father. Not I am the Father. That would be monophysism. But I am God. Seeing me is seeing the Father. So you want to know God? Yes, by systematic theology by Charles Hodge and read the first chapters of theology proper. No. You want to know God? Oh, get these sermons by such and such. No. If you really want to know God, give yourself to study Jesus, to masticate the Gospels, to really dig deep into Jesus dealing with people. You're seeing God. You're seeing God with a violent man running naked through the regions of Gadara across the lake. And he sees them. What do you have to do with us? Have you come to torment us? Nobody could shackle this guy. And Jesus deals with him, gets the demons out, and people come and find him dressed and in his right mind. Go tell them what great things God has done for you. The madman in town, you go tell them what God has done for you. The weak father. Disciples are in the mountain with Jesus, <laughs> like us, sometimes in the mountains and completely oblivious to what's happening down on the real life of people. And there's this multitude and there's this little boy, 11, 12, being cast into the fire, being cast into the water, trying to commit suicide. What's going on? There's this demon that wants to kill him. And your disciples could not cast him out. But if you can do something, and Jesus says, if I can do something, and then he says, Lord, help. I believe. Help my unbelief. And he says that when his boy is on the floor, convulsioning, fuming. Can you picture one of your children doing that? And he says, Lord, if you can do something, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus cast out the demon. He doesn't give him a lecture. He just cast out the demon. Sexually immoral woman. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. I'm shacked up with this guy. Yeah, I know, and he's not even your husband. That's number five. But he speaks peace to her. And she brings the whole town and says, I found Messiah. Before thieves, liars, and extortionists, Zacchaeus being the chief of them, salvation has come to this house today. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to stay home with you tonight. I'm going to have dinner with you. He invited himself to the wicked, to the wicked person in town home. Before children, let them come to me. Don't hinder them. Kingdom of God belongs to them. Before those who mistreated him and insulted him. That's my 40 minutes. Oops. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> what did he say? What did he say before those who mistreated him? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. They were insulting him and, cast and hurling things at him. He was hanging on a cross. He had been beaten by them. I forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I have no clue about your covenant, redemptive plan. Have mercy on them. 
How was Jesus before those who thought themselves to be righteous? Oh, we're better. We're in church today. We're not like those who were dancing and partying last night. What does he think? Check it out with the Pharisees. <laughs> what does he think about the hypocrites? Pray long, pretend holiness, who dress well. But they're like whitewashed tombs. Jewish tombs are white. And under, you have the rotten bones. What does he think about people who really think they are righteous? And you see their Facebook posts. They are always scolding people. There are some people that I have just blocked from my Facebook. I have enough to scold me. Believe me, I have a mirror. And I deal with myself. And there's none of you who's a worse sinner than me. It doesn't mean that I lead a double life. But I have enough. I don't need you reminding me. You know what Jesus did with those hypocrites? He called them, you're twice children of hell. Twice. There's people who are going to hell. But you guys are going to be twice worse. Because you know better. But you're hypocrites. What did he do? with feign obedience. Herodians, oh, master, we know that you are a man of truth and you always tell the truth. Why do you tempt me, you hypocrites, with your singing and your nice flattery words? Show me the coin. <laughs> do you want to know how it's God? Observe Jesus. Even observe him with his disciples when they came from preaching Casting out demons and healing people. And they are like little children. Lord, Lord, Lord. Even the demons cast themselves, I mean, uh, bound themselves when we cast them out. And they were just like little children. You know what Jesus did? He rejoiced. He didn't tell them, oh, now it's time to learn theology and be serious. No, no, no. He said, Father, I thank you that you hid these things from the wise and from the learned and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, that was your will. And all things have been given to me by him. And I show him to whomever I wish. And no one can come to me unless he lets them come. That's God. The eternal God, the creator, the light of men, the life giver, rejected, received, the revealer of God, full of grace, God incarnate, God's exegete, behold Look at him. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Has he taken your sins? Have you come to him for real in repentance and faith? Have you cast yourself upon him? Say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Do you want to see God with sinners? See him with a thief on the cross. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Yes, you'll be with me today in paradise. That's God revealed in the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father. The Word became flesh. Amen. Father, bless your Word. Cover my mistakes. Highlight what is from you and be glorified. Exalt your son. Thank you for your son. You don't expect us to understand it, but 
we're sorry that we don't get it, that we're like little children, we're like Philip. Have mercy on us, but thank you, thank you, Lord Jesus. We bless your name forever. Amen.